get us out of here? I'd say there are two chances of that. Hey! No way and no how. <laughs> Should have bought me that drink. Come on! This way, come on! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O, Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 113 and 114, which begin with Enola appearing concerned, and end with Deacon telling Helen he wants to kill the Mariner. We left off last week with the sharks appearing. We get to see Enola's reaction to them. She is, of course, concerned because they are not friendly dolphins. They are really nefarious-looking sharks. But then we... Leave her behind to go back underwater. Helen and the Mariner rise, and as they climb on to the back of the ship, Helen comments that she didn't know. All this time, she didn't know. And the Mariner says, nobody does. All right, the sharks. I'm pretty sure we mentioned this last week a little bit, that they're there. This is all we get to see of them, and that's a shame. So I just want to continue on that sentiment that we don't even get like a follow-up on what we saw last week. We don't see them at all this week. Just Enola's reaction to them. And it's funny because the sharks are what tipped her off and her being tipped off is what allowed her to hide. So the sharks backfired in a very minor way in a temporary setback for the smokers, but they did tip her off that something was wrong. I suspect that the smokers were following closely enough behind the sharks that when Enola stands up and she's looking at something, what she's seeing on the horizon is the smokers approaching. Because the time it takes for Helen and the Mariner to rise, the smokers have taken over the vessel entirely and are lying in wait, unbeknownst to our heroes. I'm a little surprised that the sharks simply swam past the ship and didn't go down deeper into the water to follow what I only assume is the Mariner's scent. Like, they're following the blood in the water, trailing off the side of the trimaran. Right. Apparently he's not bleeding anymore? I guess so. I guess he had some sort of way to plug the hole. I guess so. We did see him tending to his wound, but it still seemed pretty bloody when he was tending to it. And that was right before he jumped in the water to take Helen down to the remnants of the city. He hasn't exactly been taking it easy and giving this wound time to close. Exactly. And he is favoring it a little bit. Like we see when he climbs out of the water, he is holding his side, but then he immediately takes that same arm and those side ab muscles and helps Helen out of the water. Mm -hmm. So... He's doing a decent job of acting like he's favoring that side, while you can tell he isn't really. His statement that nobody knows about what they saw. I kind of want to dig into what it is that nobody knows. So does nobody know that there used to be an entire civilization on land with tall buildings and streets and ski lifts and all the things that we just saw? Nobody knows that those things used to exist. Based on a few lines of dialogue later in the movie from the Atoll survivors, I'm willing to bet that's the case. And so 
these people just imagine that the world has always been covered in water, which lends no explanation as to where their ships and the materials for them come from. Mm-hmm. When you have someone like the deacon saying that the provider says, bring forth the waters, and then the world was entirely covered in water, that's one creation myth that people can believe. But to think that that's the only way it has ever been forever, it seems a little weird to me. It really does. I just kind of assumed that they knew where they came from. It's only been four or five hundred years. That's not that long. Yeah, not long enough to completely lose all of your oral traditions, to say nothing of the fact that there are still printed materials that show dry land. We're going to see in the next couple of episodes, smokers looking at these pictures of dry land and what it looked like. And even if the mariner is the only one who has those kinds of magazines that show what dry land used to be like, well, he's not, because the deacon has them. The deacon already has them on his wall in his office, Mm -hmm. where other people come and go fairly freely. So his people know what dry land looks like. They know that it's covered in green, and it's hilly, and there's trees, and a golf course. They know generally what land looks like. The idea that nobody knows that the world was flooded and that's how it came to be is one of those foolish details in this movie. I think the major question is, even if people knew that the world had been flooded and there is the remnants of civilization below the surface, what could they do with that information? They're stuck on the surface. They can't go down that deep. You're right. They can't go down that deep. But can they? We've already talked the last couple episodes since the diving bell arrived of this technology that the Mariner has that he doesn't even need in the diving bell and the commonality of this ability. Helen should not have been able to go down there in the diving bell so deep all by herself without any like protective gear or anything. She shouldn't have been able to do that. But in this universe, in this planet, she can. So she's not special in any way. If she can do it, so can everybody else. Mm -hmm. So they ought to have been able to do this. They ought to have explored and discovered these cities. So their lack of exploration combined with their lack of an oral history. I just don't know what's going on with these people. Before modern history, history that is written down, prehistoric, you would say, all of history was oral. And that lasted for thousands and thousands of years. And it worked. Worked well enough. Mm Mm-hmm. Until people progressed along the technology path until they were able to read and write and keep records. But even then, even after writing and records was a thing, people still held on to oral traditions. People still do it today and it still works. And those oral traditions have been around for thousands of years. So the fact that in this world, oral tradition seems to be gone is ridiculous. Well, it may not entirely be gone. It may more appropriately just be wrong. But the point of oral tradition, what is part of the term oral tradition, assumes a certain correctness. It is a proper oral tradition, not just a game of telephone. Unfortunately, I feel like over 500 some odd years, you're going to get that game of telephone effect. Think about the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree 
and how his father comes and says, George, did you chop down the cherry tree? And he says, I did, father, for I cannot tell a lie. Like that story is completely apocryphal and it's repeated ad infinitum because people like the sound of it. It's an example of a story passed down from generation to generation, which is completely fabricated. All right, I will give you that. I just feel like there is, and I don't have specific examples. Your specific example is very good. I do not have examples. But the world has been relying on oral tradition for so long that it has to be better than that. That system has to be better than that example. The people in this world should be better than this specifically because the ability to read is still a thing. If you get your hands on a book, you should be able to know that the world was not always this way. The survivors on this world that cling to this idea that Dryland is not and was never is very short-sighted and rather ridiculous, and it always boggles my mind that the people on the Atoll are always so violently opposed to the very idea of it, because any sort of materials that show off things that are not directly boat and water survival related bear evidence to a world not covered in water. Yeah, the way that the Mariner says nobody does, that nobody knows the truth, almost sounds protective. He bears the burden of this knowledge <laughs> that other people are free from. Yeah. It's really subtle. It's not super obvious, but it's how I'm reading it. I don't think this is knowledge that not everybody should have. I think it's okay. It's not going to destroy anybody's worldview that there used to be a civilization before there was water. I think that's fine. I think people can handle that. I don't think it's going to change anything. If anything, it should inspire them to new actions. If people know that there are cities and salvage to be had under the water, they should strive to reach it. Mm -hmm. And that can be their goal. Maybe someone on the atoll can start building walls down below the water and make them airtight and then just suck the water out from inside of that structure. Ooh. That's how you, they build bridges. Exactly. I don't know what those structures specifically are called. Struts? Basically, they're giant panels that they drop down into the water, and they seal them all up, and then they pump the water out, and yeah. you've got a clear shot down to bedrock so that you can build up the pylons of your bridge. Yeah. <laughs> but that would be an amazing thing to do. In fact, I read a book called The Drowned World by J.G. Ballard, and that is exactly what a group of fortune hunters do. In that book, the entire world isn't completely flooded. It's just mostly flooded because that's how it would more likely be. And so these treasure hunters come into this city and they find a nice open part of the city and they dam up in between a bunch of buildings and then pump the water out from this neighborhood. And they're able to get down to street level and scavenge all the things that they're looking for. It's really cool. Something like that on Waterworld would be very impressive. Yes, it would. It would also give you a lot more real estate because you don't have to worry necessarily about building up and tipping over. If you build down into the water, it's a bit more stable. You want dry land, you make dry land. Exactly. Speaking of people who want dry land and probably could do very well to make their own dry land with the amount of pillaging they do, the smokers arrive. And Helen asks, do you think, the Mariner, can you get us out of here? And the deacon steps out from behind the mast, very cool, 
saying, I think there are two chances of that. The Mariner tries to act fast. He tries to grab at a weapon, but the Nord is right there, stopping him from pulling anything tricky. And the Deacon finishes up by saying, no way and no how. I love how the Nord is always so delighted with himself. And of course, he has a quippy line, you should have bought me that drink. This statement supposes a very different story where if the Mariner wasn't such a sourpuss, if he was a more friendly guy and he had bought the Nord a drink back on the Atoll, perhaps they could have struck up a bit of a friendship. And then instead of the Mariner teaming up with Helen, he teams up with the Nord and the story becomes him working together with the Nord to save all of the people who are trapped on the Ds because it's overcrowded. And so the two of them work together to find dry land for the sake of all of these people, these women and children and working stiffs that just want a good go at life. That is quite the imagination you have there. Yeah. And maybe if the Deacon is such a bad dude, maybe the Mariner and the Nord could team up and take things over and the Nord would prove a better leader somehow. I'm not even sure how to respond to that. That would certainly be a different movie. Oh, absolutely. As evidenced by the rest of this clip and the lines from the Deacon, I'm just not sure anybody can match the Deacon for charisma. (laughs) I'm not sure in any alternate storyline anybody could take over and depose the Deacon because the Deacon is so stinking charming. Even when he's being creepy and gross and all that kind of stuff, he's still charming. So you think that pure cult of personality would overrule anything the Mariner and the Nord could do together? Yes, I do. The Nord, he wants to be charming. You can tell there is effort there where he is trying to be friendly at times, trying to be pleasant, have a chat. But his pleasantness, his charm comes across smarmy, greasy. It just doesn't come across as, oh, I know you're bad, but I'm really enjoying you on screen the way it does with the deacon. So yeah, the cult of personality is such a thing that it can't move from the deacon to anybody else. Mm. It's so strong with the deacon. I guess the situation I imagine where the Mariner and the Nord are working together in order to bring about a regime change with the smokers is that the deacon operates on promises and requests for faith, where if the Nord and the Mariner were able to show off some action, Mm. some tangible example of what they're capable of. That's very true. The Mariner in particular has no interest in promises. He has no interest in faith. Things are the way that they are right in front of his face. His world, his trust, his faith, his hope is all in his boat because that's what's right there. That's what he has put together. It's what he has maintained. It's what he has depended on up until a couple weeks from now. So that's what his world is. If he were in a position and a temperament to actually help other people, he would produce results. And he would say, hey, guys, look, I was able to salvage enough from the bottom to make a boat and another boat and another boat. So let's make our boats together. and." Go, I don't know, look for 
Dryland because we're going to kidnap Enola anyways. <laughs> Not sure, but <laughs> yeah, my speculation about the Nord and the Mariner joining forces because of the Mariner not being such a sourpuss really doesn't allow for, well, how do you deal with the whole Enola situation? But it's just a thought. Yeah. As much as we don't want either the good guys or the bad guys to use Enola to keep her captive in any way, she's the answer to all of this. The point of the movie is to find dry land. She's the only way they're going to do that. So she has to be a tool of somebody's. So she can be a tool of the deacons who we don't trust to keep her alive or to treat her well. Or she can be a tool of the mariners who's (laughs) in the past whose treatment of her has been questionable as well. Wow. The world just sucks for Enola, doesn't it? It doesn't need to because Gregor drew a copy of the tattoo. So really, Enola physically being there isn't as important as just having a copy of that scrap of paper that Gregor carries around with him. But that's a whole other thing. Yeah. What's most important are proper introductions, which the deacon insists on doing first. He has Helen and the Mariner brought to him, and he says, I'm the deacon. And he jabs the Mariner right in the spot where he shot him so that the Mariner knows for sure, okay, yeah, he shot me. It wasn't just a lucky shot from some random smoker. It was the boss that tagged me. And the deacon goes on to say, if you don't recall the face, perhaps it's because I didn't always look like this. He's trying to find a clever way to show off his gross eye because neither of them knew him before he lost his eye. Neither of them had ever seen him before. So he's just trying to intimidate them with his gross eye. So I want to duck into the book real quick. The smoker chieftain, who wasn't really that physically large, but presented an imposing figure nonetheless, was lighting up a smokestick. His bald head was scorched red by the sun. He moved closer to the mariner and Helen, his bearing a cocky swagger. Proper introductions first, he said. I'm the deacon. It was a name the mariner was all too familiar with. A name all Waterworld knew and for the most part feared. But the mariner kept his face impassive. He would not give this arrogant vandal the satisfaction of recognition. Maybe you've seen me before, the deacon said, and just don't recall the face. And the smoker chieftain pulled back the off-kilter eyepatch goggles to reveal the hideous charred hole where an eye had been, poking his face close to the mariners, staring at him like a demented cyclops. That may be because I didn't always look like this. The mariner kept his expression impassive. The deacon backed off, readjusted his goggle patch. I supposed that the deacon making a comment about them not recalling his face was a way of him flattering himself, that he is this figure that is famous all over. But according to the book, that is exactly the case. Everybody knows about the smokers and about their chieftain, the deacon. And stories of his appearance are probably shared just as often as the stories of his conquests. Like a oral tradition? Exactly. And they are probably as varied and ridiculous as you could find. There are probably some atolls that believe that the deacon is a man who is 10 feet tall and can shoot fire out of his eyes. And there are probably other atolls who believe that the deacon can send forth 
a hail of lead with just a wave of his hand, and he is some sort of Neptune-like figure rising up out of the sea to consume the atolls. I'm willing to bet nobody imagines specifically Dustin Hoffman (laughs) when they hear talk of the Deacon, let alone a man who has only got one eye. Yes. Helen specifically doesn't seem too impressed by the, as the book said, charred hole where an eye used to be. Her lip pulls up in one quarter and you can almost imagine her saying, ew. Yeah, I feel like this is a very natural reaction. (laughs) The deacon goes on to get to the heart of the matter, that he's looking for Enola. This is the reveal that they don't already have her. Right. Up till now, we kind of assumed that they did have her. And watching this clip for the first time in quite some time, I assumed she was already off the boat and onto a different boat. So I thought he was going to reveal that, hey, we already have her. So yeah, we're just going to kill you and leave. But they don't have her. She's hiding. Yeah, if they were able to find Enola and grab her, they would probably be gone already. So that Helen and the Mariner would get back to the boat and suddenly Enola is completely gone. They would be left with no indication of who took her or where she went. Did she fall over the side? They wouldn't know. And it would be this grand mystery with no hope of finding her again because they wouldn't have any leads unless a smoker left behind a smudge of gasoline. Right. Some sort of tiny clue. From the smoker point of view, I love that idea. I love the sneaking in and out, doing something, taking something, leaving something, whatever, and nobody ever seeing you. Love it. And then from the Mariner and Helen's point of view... Nothing is more terrifying. (laughs) It's lucky for Helen and the Mariner that Enola saw the pirates approaching and had the presence of mind to find a hiding spot and found a hiding spot that was effective enough to evade these pirates that are tearing the boat apart trying to find her. Right. They've already been all over this boat and there's not really that many places to hide. So they should have found her by now. And maybe they haven't been looking too hard because the deacon specifically says, we could tear this boat apart looking for her, but I'd rather somebody just tell me where she is. Yeah. So it's possible that I was giving them a little too much credit and they basically boarded the ship, took a cursory look around, didn't see her and figured, ah, we might as well wait around. Why expend the effort to actively search for her when we could just hope that someone will come along and tell us where she is. Right. It was quite possible that Enola was down in the diving belt with them. Mm -hmm. So they get on the boat. There's nobody here. They see the winch. They see the depth gauge. And while they may not know what it is, they probably do have at least a vague idea of what this contraption is or does. They see it is coming back up. So Enola's not here. There's a decent chance that She's on the other end with everybody else. Wherever this rope is leading, that they're all there. Right. So they got to wait for the rope thingy to come back. So this scene is slowly evolving into a repeat of what we saw in the aftermath of the Atoll attack, where the deacon has two people left behind, and he says the first one that tells him where Enola is gets to live, and the runner-up, well, there are no runners-up. And the deacon is so delighted 
at this part. He says, oh, sweet Joe, I love this part. <laughs> I love that this is a repeated method. Yeah. He has a system. He has a way that he deals with people. And it works, so he keeps using it. For a few moments, kind of nothing happens. Like, they're not saying anything. They're not making excuses. They're not begging for mercy. They're not even cracking a little tiny bit. They're really just standing there, the Mariner and Helen. Mm -hmm. So the deacon leans into Helen and says, you know, personally, I'd rather shoot the sperm of the devil here, which is just so lovely. It's interesting that he leaned into Helen first because Helen actually got a bit of a clue as to what's going on with Enola. Did you notice around 47 seconds in, there is a tiny little arm that waves down below one of the spans? Yes, I did. Was that on purpose or an accident? That is most likely on purpose. To Enola let... trying to let Helen know that she is safe and she is hidden. Okay. All right. And Helen's expression seems to be oh, I know information now. I need to keep especially quiet about this. Yeah, it might have been better for Helen if she didn't know. Although, really, next week we'll see that it really doesn't make any difference. Right. None of this makes any difference at Because all. children are very easy to manipulate. Yes, they are. <laughs> so the deacon is of the same mind, which we've seen before, of the atollers, that the mariner is a freak, an abomination, the deacon refers to him as evil, sperm of the devil. Yeah. So he takes that into a religious context. Right. The provider made fish and man and never the twain should come together. Right. Watching this clip for the first time before I heard what the deacon did say, honestly, I thought he was leaning into Helen to make a gross comment. Yeah. Like, I hope I don't have to kill you so that I can take you back and have my way with you. Something like that. Because it just... Like, why wouldn't he? Right. Like, it just feels like something that he would do. Deacon or the, the smokers at all never, ever talk about sex at all. They never all go women. Nothing like that. They never even mention women at all. They don't mention them derogatorily, like they look down on them, or even that they think of them as equals. They just don't mention women at all. So we get no sense of what they think about women. Although... In the scene where the deacon's getting his eye done, there was at least one woman in there, mm -hmm. in that room, that seemed to be a bit of an inner circle. So I don't think he necessarily looks down on women, because he had one in the room with him. I say, the deacon's smokers are all his cousins, his congregation, his parish. They're all cogs in his machine, so... It makes sense that he just sees everybody else as a means to an end with no specific respect to their age, gender, or orientation. If they are useful, he will put them to use, and that is that. And I like it that the deacon is looking at Helen as an atoller and being, hey, you don't like outsiders. This guy's a really big outsider, isn't he? I'm sure that you, as an atoller, would very much prefer to see this mutant freak who all atollers hate, I'm sure you would like to see me shoot him as opposed to shooting you. When he made that statement, I was relieved because <laughs> I really thought it was going to be a gross sexist comment. So I was really relieved that it wasn't. <laughs> and this statement, it wasn't a surprise at all. So I was on board by default because <laughs> it wasn't gross. So we're going to put a pin in things for this week. We'll come back next time 
when the deacon will bait Enola into revealing her hiding spot, Nord will find the stash of magazines hidden below deck, and the Mariner will spring into action. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 57. See you next time.